This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica. If you're new around here, I'm broadcasting from Indianapolis, Indiana. And today I'm talking with Rachel Welcher. Thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. Oh, it's great to be here. Yes. Well, um, I'm so excited to talk about your book. Let me hold it up. Talking Back to Purity Culture. Uh, oh, you have one too. So it's a great cover. I love the cover. Um, yeah, they did a great job with the cover. Yeah, that's really fun. Um, but when I first heard about your book, which I think was like nine months ago or something, must have been the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> um, you know, of course, I, it immediately piqued my interest because as a lot of listeners on this show will know that purity culture is something that I went through as a kid. Um, you know, it's anyone that grew up in church that is sort of like in their 30s now, you know yeah. what we're talking about. And it, and it seems like it's sort of in the past couple of years, the conversation around it like really developed. Um, sure. Like like those of us who went through it, we sort of are now finally grappling with all the consequences of what it was. So so first of all, I'm just jumping right in, but let's yeah. stop for a second and introduce you. Tell us a little about yourself and what you do, and then we'll get into some more questions. Okay. Yeah. So I'm Rachel Welcher. I live in Iowa right now with my husband. He's a pastor here. Um, and we live in a small town. It's really beautiful. We've got an old dog named Frank. Um, and I, my experience is in teaching. I taught high school English for about a decade. And then I ended up going back to school to get my master's in theology. And that's when I got the chance to really dig into this topic um, in an academic way. And then after I graduated, I got to write the book um, and put my writing skills to use. And um, I'm also a poet. I've got a couple collections of poetry, but I love to write about practical theology as well. And it's been an honor to dig into this subject, to hear people's stories, to care for them, and to try to handle this all um, with truth and with grace. Yeah. Okay. So for those that are, oh, and you also, did you say this, that you're the editor at Fathom? Oh, right. I'm an editor at Fathom, yeah, magazine. Also, <laughs> That's right. And I'm the worship leader at my church. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> for those that may not know exactly what we're talking about, can you sort of just give a def? What is purity culture? Sure, yeah. So there's been a purity culture throughout um, the centuries and in different um, denominations and religions. But what I'm talking about in my book is modern evangelical purity culture in America, which really was a response to this fear of STDs and teen pregnancy coming out of the 70s and 80s. And so there was this huge movement in churches and even secular high schools. Um, there was government funded abstinence education to get teenagers to make these like commitments, whether it be wearing a ring or signing a pledge um, to stay a virgin or stay abstinent until marriage. So that's sort of what defined purity culture. There's a lot of messages within that that I talk about, um, some that were actually biblical and some that were extremely unbiblical and damaging. Uh, and how? And so what was it that sort of piqued your interest to sort of go this direction? How did you get to the point where you were like, wow, I'm fascinated by this and I want to mm -hmm. like devote a couple years of my life to it? Right. You know, it was a mix of things. So as a high school teacher, I feel like I often heard my students talking about just so much shame that they had um, tangled up with their sexuality. And then I had multiple friends who'd been sexually abused. And just listening to the way that they talked about it, I could tell that people had influenced their view of themselves, um, that they viewed themselves as less worthy, as, um, you know, damaged goods. And so that was part of it. But I also went through my own sort of uh, purity culture, broken promises, where I had, you know, followed all the rules, saved my first kiss for my first husband, married a guy I met at Bible college. And about four or five years into our marriage, he walked away from the faith and divorced me. And so then I was left to grapple with the fact that I'd followed the rules, but here I was a divorced woman, almost 30. And, um, just had to ask the question, like, were those promises actually from the Bible? Um, do you get good if you do good? 
or is obedience and the pursuit of purity for God's glory? And so I dug into it from a personal perspective, but also for my friends and my students. And then I wanted to study it academically as well. I wanted to reread those books of my youth and see like, what were they really saying and how much of it really was from the Bible? Yeah. I think one of the things I've heard a lot of people talking about, and you talk about in your book, of course, like what is purity? Purity, you know, it was made out, if you went, you know, if we're talking in a church context, it was made out to be um, something that, what was I, I, I can't remember how you put it, but it was about you, not about God. Right. Um, it was about, identity. Right, identity. So so mm -hmm. what, what, how, how should we be thinking about what purity is and where did they get it wrong in the way they were defining it? Mm. Well, during this movement, purity was really defined as virginity, which yeah. we know virginity doesn't um, sum up purity because if Jesus meant what he said on the Sermon on the Mount, that if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery, then sexual purity is much more all-encompassing than one physical act. But at this time in history, the main goal was to make sure kids didn't have sex because, again, because of STDs and teen pregnancy. So what a lot of Christian kids end, ended up doing is being kind of pushed into the darkness with their sexual sin, pornography, um, you know, lust, things that they could hide, but they could wear their purity ring like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a lot of pride and identity wrapped up in this idea of um, projecting an image of sexual purity but it didn't necessarily mean that we were all sexually pure um, by any means. And so, and then those who had made mistakes or had been sinned against sexually, they felt like they were, um, like I said, damaged goods. And so they, they couldn't have that identity of pure. So we weren't finding our purity in Christ. It was all about our own works and actions. Yeah. And it was also with purity culture about some kind of unrealistic expectation. Sure. Um, we, I, I've done a lot of reading on this, so, so I've heard it a lot, but maybe not everyone has just the idea that, okay, well, like you were saying, if you follow the rules then everything will work out for you. Um, you know, if you don't have sex until marriage, well, sex is so great within marriage. It's just this wonderful, like there's nothing like it. And then people right. that, you know, follow the rules of purity culture, they get married all of a sudden they're supposed to, Turn, you know, all, all their lives, they've been, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And if you're like me, um, I was never told anything else. Like my parents never told me anything else. I don't really remember hearing anything else from the church except for don't do it. And so then right. once you are in a place where you're supposed to do it, like think about what a mind spin that is and how right. you're supposed to turn that off and all of a sudden be like, oh, this thing that's been bad for so long, all of a sudden it's supposed to be great and I'm supposed to do it all the time and I'm supposed to know what I'm doing and I'm supposed right. to love it so much. Um, right. It's that whole light switch analogy that, right. that suddenly you can go from like suppressing all those feelings and, and really denying that sexuality is a part of who we are because we're so scared that we're going to sin with it. Um, and then suddenly you turn the light switch on on your honeymoon night and you're sexually confident. And um, like you said, you know what you're doing and it's great from day one. I remember over and over again, it, it was a promise that your wedding night would be like Nirvana. And so, so many of my peers now, you know, have experienced that. First of all, if you're a virgin, sex is a learning curve. You know, you're, you're learning with your spouse. And that the thing that's so sad is that purity culture made these promises and created these expectations. And it, th there was disappointment that was created that didn't have to exist because sex and marriage is such a, um, uniting thing like that learning experience with your spouse and that should have been emphasized how special that is and and hard and beautiful and all the things that it is but instead there was this false promise made this expectation that like you know it's it's just going to be mind-blowing from day one and i think a lot of christians have looked back at that and said well what so i did something wrong or maybe i wasn't pure enough and that's why it wasn't as good um rather than realizing that like sex is something that you work at and it's something that you learn and it, and that's part of the beauty of it. That was never talked about. And I think also when people do have that experience and they're disappointed and they're like, what they feel like there's nowhere to go because people don't talk about it. And, and it's really not talked about in the church. Like you just hear, you will hear people say like that they have great, you know, that married sex is so great, but then it's like, 
where is the resources for if it's not? Like, what are you supposed right. to do when you're struggling? It's not an open conversation. I mean, I've looked and, it, you know, I haven't found much. And so I think that's just another sort of issue, just that that side of things isn't a conversation that's happening. Um, and, and so many more people struggle with this, I think, than we realize. But we don't talk, we don't talk about it to each other. Like, how are you supposed to find right. someone that understands you when you can't even express the problem? Right. And I mean, I think it reveals our idolatry of sex, because mm -hmm. if we really believe that sexual obedience is for God's glory, not for some reward, then sex and marriage, we don't have to always romanticize it so much. I mean, we can say it, it can be incredible and it can also be um, challenging. Like there are seasons, you know, one thing I talked about in my book is that purity culture never talked about painful sex and marriage or seasons of illness and sickness where you're celibate in marriage and things like that. Mm -hmm. Those are realities that, that married couples face all the time. And if purity culture defines marriage as just like sex all the time, um, <laughs> first of all, that's such a low view of marriage because sex is a, a very important part of marriage, but it's not everything. And it really places it on this pedestal and it can only fall <laughs> from, from that height, you know? And so I think it shows that like, we have we have created an idol out of sex and so we can't we don't feel like we can talk about it realistically and honestly yes i was gonna bring that up later but i'm glad you brought it up um i totally agree it's like marriage is so many things that's one piece of the puzzle and yet when were we hearing sermons about healthy relationships when were we hearing sermons about like how you deal with real problems. And I think I entered marriage with that, that view and, and feeling like a failure all the time mm. um, because I wasn't living up to it. Um, the other thing that's really stuck out to me reading your book and other resources recently is just that, and I don't know that the church did this or if I just took it this way or people took it this way, but feeling as if like we as women are there to like serve our husband's mm. sexual desires, like they have these needs, they must have these needs. Right. And, uh, you know, we have to provide that outlet. Like I always was told, like I, my entire marriage until recently, I uh, had been told or in my head, my husband I never has put this pressure on me. It's all been my own mental thing. Same. Yeah. Like I'm a bad wife if I'm not doing this like right every single week or multiple times a week. Like I right. thought that way. And he's always been like, you're making too big of a deal out of this. And yet yeah. I wouldn't believe him. But he you know, would say like, this is not everything in marriage, but I just had this idolization of what sex was supposed to be. And, right. um, and I drove myself crazy with it, feeling like I was failing all the time. Oh, um, I can completely relate. And I think it, it absolutely comes from purity culture. And part of it is that we're taught as women that like, in marriage, the way to keep your husband sexually pure is to give him enough sex. Right. So there's this pressure like, oh, man, what if he he stumbles because I I wasn't there enough. And what's really sad, too, is that um, women as sexual beings, that, that's completely neglected in these conversations. The fact that that um, I point this out in my book or actually in an article I wrote recently, but sex in the Bible is actually very egalitarian. The husband's body is for his wife and the, the wife's body is her husband's. Um, there's an equality there that we don't we rarely talk about. Instead, we emphasize like as though men are just insatiable, always on the verge of sexual sin. If you don't satisfy them, the Bible doesn't talk about sex that way. We have this promise that if we are in Christ, self-control is possible through the Holy Spirit for men and for women. And so merit in marriage, sex is not about just like taking from one another. Um, it's about, it's supposed to be about creating unity. And so that what that means is that in marriage, sex is not always going to be what you want when you want it. Because if it's about creating unity and loving your spouse, then sometimes that's going to involve sacrifice. Sometimes that's going to involve waiting, whatever it means, right? Because like in these situations, I got so many um, like emails and did interviews with people who had medical issues that made it difficult to have sex with their spouse. And if they had a spouse who was just demanding it all the time, regardless of their pain level or what they were going through, that doesn't create unity in marriage. That shows that sex is a selfish pursuit rather than a unifying um, thing. And so there's, these are just things that we didn't talk about when sex is like this reward, then it becomes all about you. Like I've earned this now that I'm married, I get to take it when I want. Oh my goodness. How destructive to intimacy and unity in marriage.
Yeah. Well, I like, yeah, that point that you made about, um, you know, men have this uncontrollable desire, like that, I mean, you, you say in the book, like sex is not a human right. And, and right. It, it shouldn't be spoken of as if it is like wh whether you're talking about someone that, you know, wants to be married and isn't, but wants to follow, you know, God's, um, you know, will on, on sexuality right. or, um, it, or in marriage, like, you know, there is, your husband doesn't have a right to you. You don't have a right to your husband, you know, in that way. And, um, people sort of talk about guys, like, like they just, they can't, they're going to, they can't help themselves. I remember this, um, I have all these little anecdotes, but I remember this story in college. Um, it was like a, I was a freshman in college and they had, they were talking about this subject at, um, campus life or one of those groups mm -hmm. and they had this couple and they were talking about sexual purity and you know the guy they were saying it was like winter night and like he somehow this guy had to somehow for some reason stay at his girlfriend's house but like they were so worried about remaining pure that he decided to sleep in the car instead of on her couch and i was like there's just something wrong with that like mm -hmm. you, you you could sleep on the couch like i i just felt like you, could you really, there's really no control to to express it that way. Like as if you have to sleep outdoors because you are so out, out of control I, and that's disrespectful to men. And it also gives them a, a bad view of themselves. And then For like sure. puts women in this weird category of like temptation, bad. And, right. Uh, and I felt that in college in the Christian group I was a part of, like the, these yeah. weird vibes from guys, like they were scared of you somehow, sometimes. Right. And I, cause I think that men are taught in purity culture to be scared of themselves. Like that, yeah. that, like you said, like they're taught that they're constantly on the verge of sexual sin. And so in some ways it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like mm -hmm. the goal was to help men with self-control, but I think it did the opposite. It, it made them think that they didn't have sexual self-control um, unless they set up all these little, you know, things like the Billy Graham rule and stuff. And, and what that does is I remember talking to a, um, some male students about this because they were like, oh, we don't want our classmates, our female classmates to wear leggings. And I was like, OK, I can understand that. But what do you do when you go out and you see that billboard? Like so to just try to keep everyone around you to follow your rules, that's that's not going to work in this world. Um, you have to be able to have discipline and, and sexual self-control because you're going to enter areas where people aren't going to follow your modesty rules or your Billy Graham rules. And so this idea that the only way to have self-control is these external things, it, it has to be an internal commitment to love God and to love your neighbor. And, and you're right. I think women then were depicted, they were also dehumanized just like men and treated as like obstacles to purity or outlets. Um, in marriage. So it's like, you're either an obstacle or you're an outlet. And that's, that's not humanizing. No. And men are not monsters and women are not outlets. We are image bearers of God. We're co-heirs of the kingdom. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't start there with that dignity, then we're just going to constantly fear one another. Yeah. I mean, I've sort of, you know, not, not really had a strong opinion on the Billy Graham rule in the past, just because I was like, well, Hey, Never. Like, you know, you look at Mike Pence and you're like, well, he's never had any scandals. Now has yeah. he? <laughs> I guess that works, but I, I totally see how that plays into that very unhealthy view of like kind of putting women as a danger, like danger, danger. Right. Um, even though I understand healthy boundaries and holding yourself accountable right. in a high office like that, especially. Well, and, and I would say too, just to point out, like we all have to have our own, um, uh, boundaries. We know ourselves sexually. And so absolutely, we need to know what is a temptation for us. But when we make these like overarching, um, all encompassing extra biblical rules, they don't match all of us, right? So to say, okay, um, like I remember in the books, it'd say, you know, no kissing before the altar. Well, okay, but some people won't struggle. Like some for some couples, kissing isn't going to make them suddenly start having sex. Um, for others, maybe it would be a really big temptation. So we we can't go beyond scripture and say that everyone has to follow this extra set of rules because we'll find ways to work around it, you know? So, oh, okay, I won't kiss my boyfriend, but I will think about him um, in these certain ways and no one will know I'm doing that. So I'm still, you know, I still can wear my purity ring. Yeah. So I think that it, it's not that the Billy Graham rule is wrong, um, but to say all men have to follow it because that's the only way they can stay pure. There are a lot of problems with that thinking. Yeah. 
Okay, I have to reminisce with you for a second about uh, something that I, as a as a teenager, my church put on or was affiliated with in our town. We had this thing called Youth Fest. Oh, so, okay. Actual purity festival. How <laughs> yeah. Super fun for teenagers. Um, and it was like mud pits and water slides. And it was like <laughs> carnival. And we had all the Christian bands were there, like jars of clay. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Cool. And of course, you had to sign, you signed your purity pledge and <laughs> you're like, I'm waiting t shirt or whatever. Um, and so there's so much that you referenced in the book that was just like, yes, check, check, check. <laughs> right. Rebecca St. James' Wait For Me song, which I loved. Oh, yeah. I do it a lot. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm not saying she's like wrong for making that song or whatever. Like right. I get the intention behind it. However, that particular um, sort of iteration of this plays into another unhealthy um, stereotype that played out, which is sort of just the idolization, not only of sex, but of marriage. And so me as a young teenager, like I was very concerned with getting married. Uh, Looking back, I'm going, I'm sorry, why were you stressing out about getting married when you were 17? That's ridiculous. But I was, I was like so worried I wasn't going to find the right person. And yeah, the one I wanted to find them. um, And I thought, surely I'm going to go to college and like, there's going to be like a love story, you know, it's going to happen. So I go to college, of course, I graduate. And I'm like, Hmm, so that plan's not working out so well. Right. Um, but, and so eventually I sort of got a healthier mindset and realized, okay, mm-hmm. there's other things in life. And I started pursuing my career and, you know, yeah. I had all kinds of things going on. Obviously, eventually I did get married, which is great. Um, not till I was 30. So if you had told me when I was 17 that I wouldn't oh, be getting married at 30, I would have been like, that's, you know, that's, right. that's awful. That's so awful. I thought it was going to be a mom by the time I was 25. Right. <laughs> so anyway, just all of these like things, like the elevation of marriage in church culture um, is out of control sometimes and still sometimes. Um, so how can you talk a little bit about that side of things? Right. Well, and I, I think it really, it comes back to this idea that we are owed um, marriage at a young age, um, the same way that we're owed great sex and marriage, because if we follow the rules, then this should happen. And I think, I don't want to demonize Rebecca St. James or any of the authors I reference. Um, I think that their motives were pure, but what they did is they they really created an idol of marriage. This idea that um, if you just wait, that's what women were told over and over again, right? Wait, 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 wait. Um, if you just wait. Right. And and what's happening. So when I started writing this book and I interviewed people, I talked to so many women who are in their 30s and 40s and are still single. Mm-hmm. And so what they had, to, they're having to grapple with this idea that they obeyed God and they didn't get what they were promised. And so then what happens is so many of them are deconstructing their faith and actually believing that God has failed them. When these promises did not come from scripture, they did not come from God. God never promises us marriage. Um, and so I think what we did is we set an entire generation up to feel like failures or to feel like God failed them when really that's not what happened. Um, and in our current church culture and just society in general, being single is um, is like viewed as something that should be a short-lived season, mm-hmm. not as a legitimate calling. And when we look at scripture, of course, Jesus was single. Um, some of my heroes of the faith, Amy Carmichael and Rich Mullins. I mean, there are there is beauty and, oh, I know, right? Um, but like celibacy and singleness are viewed as sort of almost freakish in the church. Like, okay, when are you getting married? You know, if you're single and you're a certain age, people are just going to bug you all the time about it. Instead of saying like, you have worth right now. You don't have to get married and have kids to be um a beneficial member of this church. And so I think you're right that even though marriage and children are good, we have set the nuclear family up on this pedestal in church. And and then we push singles and the divorced and the widows and the same sex attracted and all these people to the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, you mentioned intention, which, you know, I, I told you in an email, like I, when I talk about this stuff, I think back to my church leaders, like my youth group leader, and I do not think that they had malicious intent. I think no that way. they really wanted to love us as teenagers and provide us good direction. I think they were given directives 
you know, for, for far above them, maybe um, just like bad direction. But then yeah. I also think about like, I don't know if you've had this thought, but of course I kiss dating goodbye is like the, the book. Mm-hmm. And about. But I have honestly felt so bad for Joshua Harris in the past couple of years. Like I, my heart breaks for him because I just am like, it's not his fault that some no. book company gave him this deal and everybody right. threw the book out there. Like he was just a kid. Okay. He like so young. Everybody has their uh, idealistic moment. Oh, yeah. Nobody knows anything when they're 21 and people just blame him. And he thought and he made this documentary. And now of course, like, I'm like, now he's not even a Christian anymore. And I know it's I, devastating. We did not we, but like we uh, did that to him in a way because I just can't imagine how it felt to be him and feel the weight of so many people putting that on him to where like I don't I don't want to do that to him like I feel so bad. Um, well, and where's the personal responsibility for us as readers and Christian leaders? Because what I think what happened with his book is that it was written by a young Christian, and so all the parents handed it to all the kids. Right. And I'm not blaming parents here, but the thing is, like one of the problems with these books is that we were all reading them, but we were not reading them together. We were reading them alone and internalizing these messages. One of the points I make in my book is that if we're going to read anything about sexual purity written by a fallible person, we need to do it in community because I think that would solve so many of the problems if we had said, hey, is when he says this, does this actually come from scripture? Like, is this a command of God or is this just an advice from one individual, something that worked for him. If we had done that, um, it would have prevented a lot of this angst and misunderstanding. Um, And also Joshua Harris's book was not the worst offender by any means. When I went back and read the books, oh my goodness, his was just the most popular one. And so he is the face of the purity movement, whether he wanted to be or not. Um, And yeah, I think what that did to him, oh my goodness. I mean, I'm I'm not going to speak for him. I did interview him for the book and he's a, he's a really nice guy. Um, But people just went crazy on him. Like I saw the stuff they would say to him on Twitter and he just took it and said, okay, well, I guess my book sort of, you know, is the, I don't want to say it's the scapegoat, but he, he decided to take all the criticism and reevaluate his messages. And I think he was very humble about it. Oh, he definitely was like, I, whenever I would see the, uh, you know, the hate going towards him, wherever it was, I just would be like. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. It is not his fault, okay? It is not his fault. Um, It's anyone's fault. It is the fault of the adults in the room who made it happen. Um, and even then, even they probably had good intentions. It just right. was misguided somehow all along. So anyway, and then I, I recently discovered, um, I don't think you referenced this book, but, um, love and respect. Have you read that one? No, I've heard of it though. Um, I had that book and then I recently found out like, that's not a good one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like that. It's got some really bad advice in it. Like, uh, on the, uh, for, for the, uh, Christian marriage and sex talks. I was like, okay, I'm glad I got rid of that one. It's so hard because, you know, when Christians are writing these books, like we are doing our best, hopefully to honor the Lord, but we are fallible. And so Mm -hmm. I even say this in my book, but it's like, I'm going to make mistakes in my book. I do not believe, I don't want my words to ever be put on the same level of authority as scripture. And so what I tell people is please read my book with other people. Please do not read this alone. 
um, because I'm just a fallible person. I'm trying to give you some tools to start a conversation, but don't put my any of my advice um, on the same level as scripture. That's what we did with these purity books, right? We, mm -hmm. we said, okay, the Ludi story has to be mine or else I'm somehow, I've failed as a Christian or, um, you know, I need to keep waiting until I have this perfect romance. Um, I think we just, we internalize these messages in really bad ways. Yeah. And I think we do that. Not, I mean, people do this with Christian books all the time. Like thinking like the Bible verses quoted in your, um, Christian self-help book are not enough, uh, to sustain you in sort of your like holistic faith. Like you need to be opening the actual Bible and reading it because that is Amen. really how God speaks to us. Um, we have to do our own searching. It's sort of like a uh, spiritual laziness to rely on, or what did I, I was, I read somewhere the other day, somebody called it like, uh, Oh, it was something like that. Spiritual laziness. It was a, it was a better term, but I can't remember what it was, but you get it. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, so, so church hurt, you talk about that a little bit. Um, I would say that my experience with purity culture is a form of church hurt for me, definitely probably the most significant one. Um, and I, but I love the church so much. It's very close to my heart. I mean, my writing and my work nowadays, like is really surrounding the church and, and wanting people to come back to it. Um, but you mentioned church hurt and how people are dealing with that and maybe are feeling afraid or just not wanting to go back to a place that that did this to them so what are your words to a person like that first of all i would say i'm just so sorry i mean i think we start there like i believe that church is uh, not only important i mean i believe it's a command of god that we gather um it's a form of obedience but i think that we need the church because we are a one body together and so when you're hurting, we're all hurting. And it's it's not okay what happened to you, but it's okay to grieve it and to be upset. And I think, you know, you just have to tell those things to God, cry out to him, tell him you're hurt. But I would just encourage anyone who's been hurt to, um, to try to get to a place where they can join a fellowship again, understanding that church is made up of a bunch of sinners we're saved by grace, but we, we fail constantly. And that's why we need each other because we are not perfect and um, we're a family, but Christ is our example. And so if you are hurting because of what other Christians have done to you, don't forget to fix your eyes on Christ. He will never fail you. He has never failed us. And while people will, he won't. And so I know it's easy to say, well, just get back to church. But do get back to church and take your hurt with you. It's okay to sit there and to just cry. Um, I remember um, after my divorce, and this wasn't church hurt, but after my divorce going into a church and just, I didn't serve that church. I just went and it was all I could do to just get myself there. And I would just sit and I would um, cry and pray. And I'm so thankful that there was a church who was willing to just let me sit in that seat and take really just take it in. And I, I felt like I wasn't offering anything, but I took my tears to church as John Piper says. Mm -hmm. So if you have been hurt by the church, um, it's understandable because we're a bunch of sinners and we can do some terrible things sometimes, but don't give up on Christ and don't give up on your brothers and sisters. Yeah. That's a great message. Um, yeah. I think it's so interesting when you read about many people that leave church and just, just the statistics about people are that, People are leaving church and and all of that, but but almost all of them, the vast majority of them, still pray and don't and don't have a negative opinion of God. Um, mm, it's all about the other people, and so I feel like there's a disconnect, um, but also an opportunity. Just that mm. there's a lot of people that are searching. Most people have a deep spiritual longing. I think. Um, and, are, and are wanting to fulfill it, but not sure how. And so I do think church is part of that. Um, but I think it's so interesting because we just hear all this stuff about how, oh, you know, America is just becoming godless and, you know, mm -hmm. post-Christian and all this stuff. But I don't really think it is. I, I think mm -hmm. there's a lot more to it than 
what the uh, Pew statistics say about who's sure. the church building. So, um, well, and, and this is a whole other topic, but a lot of that could be that one of the teachings that went along with purity culture for our generation was this individualism. Like mm -hmm. it's me, Jesus, me and my Bible. And yeah. obviously um, our relationship with Christ is an individual relationship with him, but scripture constantly emphasizes the church and the body. We're supposed to be a body. And so I think that our generation doesn't value the church as much as maybe previous generations because we were taught this, you know, just me and my Bible, just me and Jesus. And um, it's easier that way, by mm -hmm. the way, like other Christians are difficult, um, engaging, forgiving, trying to understand, trying to fellowship with people that are different than you. Those are things that take so much work. And yet, um, if we are a body, that means we have to be together. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and right now with COVID, maybe together means this, right? Together on video or on the phone. But we have to be um, in each other's lives, loving one another, even when it's hard. Yeah. Well, to take it, I want to take it back to purity culture real quick. Yeah. Um, just because I, I do want to talk about some of the effects on people. So you've interviewed a lot of people over the years. What are some of the, if you could just give me a couple examples of, of the ways people have really suffered um, mm. later on from, from internalizing all of those messages? Well, like I said, I, I started with um, some friends who'd been sexually abused in mind, and that, those were the most devastating conversations. Just hearing how, um, you know, those visual metaphors of like the cake with a piece taken out of it or the gum that's chewed or the rose that's passed around the room. You know, they they sat there um, having been sexually sinned against and they viewed themselves as that half eaten cake or whatever it was. And just what that does to a person's worth. So even though they hadn't committed the sexual sin, they they didn't maybe have their virginity anymore. And so purity culture emphasized that virginity is the greatest gift you can give your spouse, especially if you're a woman, which, is, of course, is. So now they no longer have the best gift. So what are they going to give their spouse second best or whatever? Um, and so that's one side of it. And then I mentioned these, you know, groups of people who aren't really uplifted in the church, um, people who are single or same sex attracted or divorced or even the infertile. Um, they don't fit into that typical um, nuclear family mold. And so um, they've been hurt by purity culture because purity culture didn't even acknowledge that those are realities. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the idea that you might um, follow the rules and get married and then not be able to have kids. I remember one author I read said that if you um, stay a virgin before you're married, you will have children with ease in marriage. And that is just has not been the experience of me and so many of my peers. Um, having children can be such a struggle. And then mm -hmm. so many um, wonderful men and women that I know are not married. And it doesn't mean that they're lacking. It doesn't mean that they didn't follow the rules. Um, they're just, they have not found a spouse and yet they're left to wonder what's wrong with them. And we created that feeling that they're experiencing. God didn't. Um, purity culture is the reason they're wondering if there's something wrong with them. So those are just a few examples. Yeah, I, I will add just a little bit about my own experience, just that it, it's for me and, and I don't know how much of this is culture or how much of this is purity culture, but just really just a, an anxiety about, like I was saying earlier about failing, about not living up to some standard of, sure. of kind of woman I'm supposed to be. Um, and then just the, um, I, I feel like I carried the shame of, you know, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad to the point where it's like, I can't, it, it's hard to, to take that. This is bad label off. I mean, right. there's a line in your book where you said something like something about like sexuality and oh gosh, now I can't remember. But it's something about how we don't um, like we we see sexuality itself as bad, essentially. Right. Right. Almost and, like it, it was the fall of mankind. Right. That it's. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. I, I think um, I mentioned when it comes to talking to our children. We need to teach our children that sexuality is a God created good. Like 
our kids should expect their sexuality because that's part of being, it manifests itself in different ways for each person and the fall impacts it. But our kids shouldn't be surprised like, oh no, I'm having sexual feelings, I'm in sin. I think we need to help them understand what sin is and what is just being human. And sexuality and sex existed before the fall, right? Adam and Eve didn't discover sex after they ate the fruit. And I think that's really important theologically that we acknowledge that sex isn't like, and our sexuality isn't just this evil. Um, It does have a very um, exclusive way that we can express it. Um, But Deborah Hirsch, she talks about the fact that sexuality is not just the act of sex itself, but sexuality is part of just longing to be known. And so we can have levels of that intimacy in friendship, in community, in church. Um, So to to limit that desire to be known and that desire for intimacy to just the sexual act um, in marriage, it neglects the fact that we can have close friends and meaningful relationships um, and we can be known even if we aren't married. Yeah. I, I was so glad that you included a chapter on talking to your kids because, you know, my kids are two and five. So, okay. you know, as a five-year-old though, we're getting to that point where I, I mean, I am, I am dead set on doing this right because my okay. parents never said a word to me to this day. <laughs> about oh my it. Um, it just wasn't spoken of in our home. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, they left it to the church, like so many parents do. Um, and I don't think they, again, like everyone else, they weren't malicious. They didn't have bad intentions. Right. They just didn't know what to say or what to do. Um, and so I'm not doing that with my kids. Like we're going to talk about it. Luckily, my husband um, has a really healthy view of things. He doesn't have any issues with this. He didn't grow up in the church. The things that you mentioned about how we talk to our kids. Well, and I say this as someone, I'm not a parent yet, um, but I spent, you know, about 10 years with high schoolers. And so one of the things I say is when talking to older kids, a great way to transition into that conversation is just to use what they're already watching and listening to. So like with my students, if they were talking about a TV show, I'd say, oh, okay, I caught an episode of that. How do they depict sex in that show? Um, Or, okay, I've heard that song on the radio. What are they saying about women? and what women are for and you know how their worth is defined. And what was interesting is it, it kind of takes their defenses down and even the awkwardness and they're like, oh, we're talking about something we like. And so, and she knows what I'm talking about. And so, and then we'd get into it and I'd say, well, is that how the Bible talks about sex? And they'd be like, oh, actually, no, that's really, those are very different things. Um, so that's one thing I talk about with teenagers. And then with our children, it's just so important to, um, remove the mystery of, um, you know, these are your parts, call them what they're supposed to be called. There's so many reasons to do that. Um, yeah. But to to, ma- to make sure your children know that it's not shameful for them to have sexual curiosity. Um, if, if they ask a question and the response is shame, that they're ashamed for asking the question, well, what is a kid going to do? They're going to go find the answer out themselves, right? So my, my question to parents is, do you want to be the one to talk to your kids or do you want them to go onto the internet? Um, I had so many people share with me that their addiction to porn started with having questions that the church would not answer. Seriously. Mm-hmm. And so they would go online and then it would lead them down that black hole. And so I'm not saying that if you answer your kids' sex questions, they'll never struggle with porn, but like you should talk about pornography with your kids. It's such a, a prevalent thing that it should be a discussion that's very open, like, okay, we know this exists, we know this can be a temptation, we're going to talk about it. Um, And so I think that, you know, where maybe when I was young, parents could wait until you were a teenager to talk about sex. Our culture is so sex saturated that you're going to have to talk to your kids as early as they start asking about it. So you might think it's too soon. But if they're asking about it, that means they're ready to hear the answer. That's my opinion. I know I'm not a parent. And I, I don't mean the answer in full detail, but you know, you know, you know, your kids, you're praying, you're talking to your spouse about it. But I think that we just, we have to make sure that we're not making our children feel ashamed of being sexual beings when that's something that is a God created good. Yeah. Yeah. I, we are so conscious of that now, just with the little things, with little boys, you run into this, um, you know, it's just constantly just uh, no emotion. Like there's, you just got to, um, make sure that you're being intentional about how you're 
responding to things. And, um, you know, I, I would love it if we had a house that you could just talk about stuff like that. I mean, I guess you're always going to be embarrassed in front of your parents talking about it. Sure. <laughs> I guess that's going to be a normal thing. Um, but it doesn't have to be um, as uh, debilitating as it was for me. Um, I'm very thankful that I'm in a place now where I'm really healing from a lot of that. And it's really an answered prayer after a lot of years of dealing with it, um, only recently answered. And I think probably just the conversations that have been happening in the past couple of years are sort of what's been able to lead to a lot of other people like me being able to figure it out. Cause I've been sitting here, you know, for years, like I just can't figure it out. Where's the root of this? How do I overcome, you know, this ingrained stuff? And, um, so if you're watching or listening and you are in that place, um, definitely read Rachel's book. Like 100% you get this book. Uh, it's got so much good stuff. Um, but sh there's a lot of, there's other books out there too that can sort of complement that. Um, sure. I'll, I'll leave some recommendations of ones that I've been reading. Um, so anyway, all that said, I, I, we're, we're going to wrap up here in a second. I did want to... Um, mention a quote. You have a, a great quote. Uh, Too often purity rhetoric pur purity rhetoric um, focuses on what we should and shouldn't do instead of what Christ has already done. Mm. Um, I love that quote, and I think that it is can apply to so many, <laughs> so many other um, things in our lives as well. Um, you know, yeah. if we're obsessing over anything, it's like stop and look up and yeah. If that's not your focus, then then you're focusing on the wrong thing. Because God God is not going to lead you astray. Like right. He, right. if you are truly, if you are pursuing Him with your heart, like with a pure heart, He's not going to lead you in the wrong direction. But you got to trust Him, and um, you know that's opening Scripture. That's going to Him in prayer. It's going to Him first before a friend or a book or whatever or a pity party. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just, that was just a, a bit, yeah, um, I had like more questions, but we cannot talk forever. I just, <laughs> it's sufficient to say that I loved it so much. I'm so thankful for this conversation, Rachel, and I hope that it is really helping people. Um, so I love to close out my interviews, uh, asking you what you've been reading lately, what you've been listening to watching, what you can recommend to people. So could you give us a couple of of things that you could recommend? Sure, related to the topic or? It doesn't have to be. No. Okay, I've kind of taken a little bit of a break on reading books on purity. So I've been yeah. reading, um, yeah. <laughs> so I I love Annie Dillard and Henry Nowen. So I've been reading a lot of them um, just for my own. Uh, I read Annie Dillard because I want to be a better writer and she's just so incredible. And then Henry Nowen, um, I'm reading a book called The Inner Voice of Love where he just, was going through a time of deep discouragement and he um, decided to take some time to just be quiet in his soul. And um, he's, he has these like letters he wrote to himself and they're really, really speaking to me um, as an Enneagram too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but anyway, so that's what I've been reading. And then um, watching my husband, and I've been watching old episodes of Monk. <laughs> Oh, and I, I'm introducing him to Friday Night Lights. So yeah, oh. we're just having fun. You know, honestly, TV can be such a, a blessing to just kind of um, like a book, like to just escape into another world or story. Like I like to go to Stars Hollow with the Gilmore Girls <laughs> or, you know, um, to Dillon, Texas with Friday Night Lights just to kind of escape into that for a little while to rest. Um, that's probably not very um, academic or Christianese to say that TV is a blessing, but I think it is. <laughs> it can be. Especially if it's night lights, come on. Yeah, and it's I've been listening to Caroline um, Caroline Cobb's Advent album is so good, and then David Ramirez just because he's amazing. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Rachel. Well, let's stay in touch. Um, okay. Let me know. Maybe how we'll I do this again. Yeah, totally. There's I, so much more that we could talk about. <laughs> like my, I was just going through and like. You, I don't know. You probably can't. Yeah, it's a little. <laughs> I can see. That's awesome. Like, I love gonna, that you read with a pen. <laughs> I buy a digital book. It just doesn't happen because I got to underline, <clears throat> get all the good stuff out of there. Um, as someone who, well, I'm sort of, I guess I'm, I'm writing another book right now, but, um, but I'm always like taking notes, like on how other people are doing, like setting up chapters, all that stuff. So oh, yeah. Just a million things. Oh, I should. I was going to ask you about um, um, 
your writing process. Do you have, do you have a couple more minutes? Sure. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about like, in terms of when you wrote it, like, did you like, did you have a structure, like an organizational structure? How did you put it together? Cause it's such a big task when you go into it. Yeah. So this was my first, my other books are all books of poems. And so, um, I've written lots of essays, but this was my first time writing a full length theological book. And, um, I would say that, that the outlining stage, like trying to figure out what each chapter would be about, um, took months and, mm -hmm. And it was a huge, that was a really hard task for me. So I, what I did was I had like um, bulletin boards and whiteboards and I had to just like draw lines. And um, as I would interview and keep reading, I would realize that different topics needed more or less emphasis. Um, and ultimately as a writer, you have to accept that you cannot say everything. Yeah. And that's really hard because you're always going to have readers who are like, why didn't you say this? And I'd be like, well, because it could only be this many pages, you know? And mm -hmm. so um, what I ended up doing is just starting out by saying, I'm not going to cover everything. This is just the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. And in some ways that kind of freed me up to say, okay, I'm going to try to address these things, but I'm not trying to be the expert on every subject. I want people to dig into these things themselves. So yeah, I did a lot of like the, the bubble and line graphing and yeah. then, um, just a lot of coffee and, <laughs> um, discipline, you know, get going to the office. I work in this old Baptist church with stained glass and just um, making myself write a certain number of words each day. Um, and then a lot of times you end up cutting all those words, but you gotta, you gotta do it. How many, um, or sorry, how long did it take you from start to finish? So I had written my entire dissertation on like one aspect of this, how the book spoke to um, those who'd been sexually abused. So I had a lot of the research done. Um, but then I ended up there's I cover so many topics that I read. I read a lot of books. And so I would say once I um, got my my um, book proposal accepted, it was seven months. But in all, I would tell people that it was about a three year process. I yeah, because this um, I just can't stop. Re I, I've had to be like because of this book that I'm working on now. Like I'm like. I can't stop reading books. Like I keep seeing books where I'm like, oh, I need to read that for the book. I need to read that for the book. I'm like, literally, right. I do not have this time in my life. I cannot read all these books. Right. You can't. You absolutely it's can't. not possible. And I'm right. like, cannot, you know, and then there's the other task. You you have a master's in theology. I don't, but I'm writing about church issues and I'm like going, I'm not smart enough to be writing about this, you know, but I think I stop and I think to myself, you know what? God has given you a message to the people that you're going to give the message to mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. Like he can't no do with the message that he wants you to, to deliver. And so I'm kind of pushing back against like these doubts and, you know, I'm not going to have enough knowledge and all of these. No, things. I mean, an education is great, um, but it's not what makes you a good writer. Um, and so writing is what makes you a good writer and reading is what makes you a good writer. And, um, you know, I know so many Christians who they don't have the degrees, but they're the most, you know, theologically literate people. And also it's just that practical wisdom of being someone in church and being someone who's in the word. Um, so you, you're you going to write what people need to hear and press on sister, you're gonna do it. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you Rachel. Okay, well, I'll let you go. Um, All right, this is great. And uh, we will be in touch. Okay, sounds good. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.